host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner and CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Singer, who is a member of the Cato Institute, and we are discussing alternative views on opioid addiction and opioid overdoses and the crisis that we've been dealing with here in the U.S. uh, for the past decade and more. So he's got a different perspective that I think is really valuable bringing to the table. Um, Before we get too deep into that, I want to hear from our sponsors, the Global Exchange. The Global Exchange Conference 2022 is a four-day event of continuing educational presentations, workshops, and experiences from November 1st through the 4th. Located at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida, this event, for the first time ever, brings together professionals and organizations from the mental health, addiction, and wellness fields. With over 100 continuing education hours presented by over 60 professionals, this promises to be a tremendous learning and networking experience. GXC 2022's featured speakers include Deepak Chopra, Whoopi Goldberg, Gabor Mate, and Rob Lowe. For more information, go to globalexchangeconference.com. I came across uh, Dr. Singer's work online, and then I appreciate it. I was actually connected to him by Nick Stavros over at Community Medical Services, who happened to know him. I was really impressed with Dr. Singer's work. Uh, some of you may know that I speak around the country and internationally, not just on topics of business growth and marketing within the behavioral health space. I also do a lot around uh, data in terms of addiction and efficacy of uh, treatments and modalities. And so I've spoken at the Addiction Treatment and Research Conference in Barcelona a couple of years ago. I was a primary speaker for the American National Wellness Association's National Conference a couple of years ago. And I've done national CEU events as well, as many as 400 clinicians attending. So this topic is very near and dear to my heart. And it's very important, I think, that we look much more closely at the data and what it tells us when it comes to addiction causation, addiction treatment, because we haven't been good as a profession about doing this historically. And this isn't just related, obviously, to behavioral health. Every profession has this issue. You know, you look at the myth of learning styles in the education space, which is still very widespread. You look at the myth of the efficient market hypothesis in finance. Yeah, another great example within the behavioral health space is there was just actually a new umbrella meta-analysis released in Nature, uh, originally through the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry, uh, called the Serotonin Theory of Depression, a Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. And I'll put that link in the podcast notes as well. But uh, if, if you're familiar as listeners, there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance as a primary driver of depression and most likely other behavioral health issues as well. So this is a misconception that has existed for a long time. And as the meta review notes, you know, over 85% of the general populace believes that uh, depression and other mental health issues are caused by a chemical imbalance, in particular, often a, a a lack of serotonin or dopamine tend to be the big ones, as well as close to 50% of physicians also believe that's the case. So there is no evidence whatsoever, and there hasn't been ever really. There was just a 
uh, this kind of popular distribution of this information. And often, sometimes, if you talk to psychiatrists, they'll say it's a nice, simple way to explain things, even though it might not be accurate. Um, so this information has gotten out there, and it's completely inaccurate in terms of what's actually happening. The, the reality is that we don't know what's happening, but we are confident that it is not a lack of serotonin or a lack of dopamine that is driving these issues. It's not a chemical imbalance per se, at least from anything that we've been able to research over the past several decades. So really good example of how wrong information often becomes a mainstream narrative that doesn't match up with the data. And even though we've had the data for decades and decades, uh, we still have um, popular and professional uh, misconceptions related to causation in this case. So it happens in education, it happens in finance, it happens in behavioral health, it happens in every single field. And so this podcast and part of what we want to talk about here is combating some of these disconnects between what we actually see in the data and what we can learn from that versus what may be uh, the popular narrative at the time. Um, these ideas, once they get entrenched, are very, very hard to move past. As a physicist, Max Planck once said, you know, science advances one funeral at a time. And what he meant by that is once an idea is entrenched, it's very, very hard to displace it or move past it um, until really some of the main proponents of those theories or those narratives have passed on and new generations come up and it's easier to bring new ideas to the fore. And so I think this has happened within addiction treatment in particular uh, on a couple occasions. And one of them is definitely around some of the narratives that influence how we view uh, the opioid crisis and addiction. And what we'll deal with with Dr. Singer and some of the ideas that we bring to the table is uh, this idea of opioids you know, hijacking and kind of taking over the, the brain and almost making it inevitable, right? That if someone takes an opioid, they're somehow going to become addicted to it, which is not supported by any of the evidence that's out there. Um, the data is very, very clear that that's not the case, and Dr. Singer will dig into a lot of that. And then we also have this idea that you know addiction is chronic and progressive and that people, once they get into addiction, again, it's it's so very, very hard to get out. And that, again, is not supported very clearly within the data. So if you just look at basic SAMHSA data, this is one of the points I'll often cover in, and this is one of the points that I cover when I'm doing my talks nationally and internationally, is when you look at, you know, the 18 to 26-year-old demographic, that is always your demographic that has the highest rates of SUD as defined by DSM criteria. And then suddenly at the age of 27, you have a 50% drop-off in total SUD rates. So between the age of 26 and 27, suddenly 50% of people no longer meet the criteria for SUD. And as we know, running behavioral health programs, it's not like all those individuals are coming into treatment centers or going to AA or other support group meetings. They basically walk away from addiction for a large variety of reasons, right? Often it's careers, it's family, it's life goals, it's a different milieu that they're in, you know, no longer in the young person kind of, let's say, irresponsible party scene, for example. Um, they have different goals in life. And so we see that reflected in the data. And then obviously, if addiction was chronic and progressive for anyone that got involved with it, we would constantly see rates of addiction going up as people age and over time. And that's not present in any of the data for the past 50, 60 years. If we look at the SAMHSA data, if we look at the NASARC data, addiction rates are actually flat. So while we have people getting into addiction right at different stages in their life, we have just as many people leaving addiction. 
And again, we know from the SAMHSA data that only 11% of people struggling with NSUD seek or utilize formal treatment. So we know it's not that more people are getting access to care that somehow balances this out, but it's actually that about 80% of people struggling with an SUD simply um, find recovery or moderate on their own without interventions from professional services or even support groups of any kind. So there is this disconnect between what the data tells us and how we actually approach uh, addiction treatment. And so why is this important? Why am I talking about this? Why do I have Dr. Singer on for the Recovery Executive Podcast? It's much more focused around the business aspect of things um, because I'm not interested in, in politics and going back and forth and debating the various aspects of theory, right? Um, unless it connects to the quality of the care that we deliver. And that's exactly why I want to bring this topic to the podcast is because if we misunderstand causation, if we misunderstand why people are getting into addiction, then we are going to misapply the treatments. And we've seen that consistently within the addiction treatment and the behavioral health space, right? But addiction in particular. So if we assume that by taking a drug, that that drug hijacks the brain and overtakes that person's systems and removes their ability to make decisions or have any real control over, over their future choices, or on the flip side, if we think it's genetically determined and we think that there is just this biological reaction that happens um, where people suddenly have a disease that maybe they didn't know was there before. And again, they have to engage in this behavior because there's this combination of, of drugs with um, a genetic predisposition, right? Um, then we assume that the only answer is to have people stop using and that if they just stop using, then the rest of the problem will solve itself because the stem of the problem is actually use and, and going near or having that drug in the body. We know that's not the case, right? We know this from treatment. We know this from the outcomes that we see, the constant relapses that we see, is that there is something behind the drive to use. It is more than just being exposed to drugs or alcohol. It's more than having it in the system. There are psychological drivers. There are external drivers that also interact within an individual's life that precedes use and makes it much more likely that that person is going to use and those drivers are outside of just simple biological issues. And so if we don't address these drivers, right, things like trauma, things like access to services or access to social mobility or family dynamics or an individual's ability to cope or their ability to regulate their emotions, right, then there's a much higher likelihood that they are going to return to use. And so when we better understand causation and we look at the data to truly know all these multivariate factors that actually drive addictive behavior and behavioral health issues, we are much better equipped as programs or as individual therapists within programs to apply effective clinical interventions. And so that's why I think this topic is a very, very important one. You know, with Dr. Singer, we're just gonna bring up one aspect of this. Maybe we'll address some different aspects on different episodes, and I'll definitely be sure to uh, put a link to some of the CEU events and um, speeches that I've done on this topic that really do a deep dive into the data to understand causation and how that applies to treatment. So I'll give that option available to people. So with all that as a background, you know, I wanted to really set 
the stage for this particular interview because it is a little bit not as focused on the business element. I wanted to clarify why I thought it was important to have this particular conversation. And so I'm very excited to have Dr. Singer on. He's got an excellent handle of the data and then what that potentially means for addiction treatment. And I really value his expertise and it was very appreciative that he was willing to come on the show and share his perspective with us. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Jeff, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Can you tell us just a bit about yourself, especially your uh, interest in the SUD space and your work at Cato? Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a general surgeon in private practice. I've been in private practice since 1981. I got all my education and training in New York City and moved out to Arizona in, in 81. And actually, before then, to do my residency and start my practice. And uh, I've always had a, a deep interest in public policies, even since undergraduate days. As my practice matured, and I was able to get and, and grew into a large group practice. I was able to take more free time, got more involved in public policy, and eventually became uh, an adjunct at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. And now, now uh, in this phase of my life, I'm the uh, I'm president emeritus of my group practice. I practice part-time, and I work full-time for the Cato Institute in the Department of Health Policy Studies. Being that I am a physician in clinical practice, I've always had an interest in the uh, opioid overdose issue, and uh, uh, it was a natural that when I came on board at Cato, the people there actually encouraged me to get get involved in that. So I've been in, involved in, in research on the subject and written a lot and published and spoken a lot on the sub- subject for the last five years. Well, it's, I appreciate the background. That's exactly why I want to have you on, <laughs> is that excellent background. And, and can you tell us a little bit about what, what's Cato's interest in the opioid epidemic and SUD? Well, the Cato Institute is a, a libertarian think tank. It's been around it, since 1977. And so, uh, and, it, and it does public policy research on the full gamut of issues from, you know, foreign affairs to fiscal matters to uh, health care policy, education policy, et cetera. And uh, it, it's, its philosophic orientation is such that it wants to look for uh, solutions to issues that uh, move things in a more freedom-oriented direction and don't involve coercion. And since the beginning of the Cato Institute's inception, it's been writing against the war on drugs, drug prohibition in general, and pointing to the unintended consequences of it. So uh, I view the overdose crisis, and I, I actually, I, I, I don't like to call it an opioid crisis. Uh, it's an overdose crisis. And, and, and if you really want to get technical, it's a prohibition crisis, because most of what we're seeing is, in my opinion, the unintended consequence of drug prohibition in general. Uh, We have a growing population of people who are using drugs, many of which are illicit, but even illicit ones, they're using them non-medically outside of the, you know, the patient doctor setting. Uh, And because so often they have to access these in the, uh, you know, underground or black market, that's what makes it dangerous because when you're getting things in the black market, uh, you don't know if it's exactly what you think it is. You don't know what the dose is. Uh, you don't know if it's adulterated with things. And that's what's really driving the overdose rate, in, in my opinion. And uh, uh, I, therefore, my, my, my bias is to, is, is to look for solutions that are freedom enhancing, because I think if we enhance freedom and uh, 
pull away from prohibitive approaches, we're going to see actually a, a decrease in the unintended in the harmful effects. You're never going to have a society that is going to be free of harms and risks. And also, I mean, that's part of life. But a lot of the risks that we see, a lot of the deaths that we see in society today, particularly drug-related deaths, uh, in my opinion, are completely avoidable and would not be taking place were it not for the fact that we have prohibition in a black market. Okay, so we've got this wider conversation around the war on drugs. And then in particular, especially with the Cato Institute, you've been looking at the opioid overdose or the, opi- or the overdose crisis, as you referred to it. And your perspective is that is not a result of overprescribing based on pharmaceutical Correct. access, which is, you know, contrarian or contentious in the field. So what, what data and what information leads you to that conclusion? Yeah, by the way, I'm going to get to that in a second, but it's it's interesting, uh, you know, in the, the, there's, well, uh, here, the, the University of Pittsburgh's uh, Graduate School of Public Health published a, an excellent study in the journal Science, and I think it was September 2018, where they were able to go through CDC data, and uh, they showed that the overdose, overdose deaths in the United States, the overdose rate has been on an exponential growth trend at least since the late 1970s, that's as far back as they were able to go with the data. And the only thing that has changed over time is what particular drug or drugs are predominating among the overdose deaths at any particular point in time. But it's, it's on an exponential trend. And when they published this in 2018, they said uh, this there's evidence that this is due to factors other than prescribing, but social sociocultural and socioeconomic trends, and they see no evidence that this is going to abate anytime soon. And then uh, in 2019, uh, the, the Joint Economic Committee of Congress issued a report where they were able to trace overdose deaths, the beginning of overdose deaths going up back to 1959. So we start off uh, with, with, with the fact that overdose deaths have been going up long before we had this, this uh, uh, you know, it, it attributed to, to prescribing opioids. Then it's interesting that in the, in the 70s and 80s, uh, and even into the early 90s, when we saw people dying of, of uh, drug overdose deaths, they were largely, uh, at least largely thought that to involve people in uh, minority communities, inner city communities, marginalized groups. So, so the, the popular narrative in those days was to blame them for making bad choices, uh, for basically moralizing these are make, these are immoral lifestyle choices and they're leading to to bad outcomes. Then, as uh, prescribing of opioids increased in in the mid to late '90s, early 2000s, we started seeing overdose deaths involve a larger proportion of uh, you know white middle class people, uh, suburban people. So now we blamed instead of blaming it on their bad lifestyle choices. Uh, we couldn't do that, of course. So now they're victims. They're victims of nefarious pharmaceutical companies and uh, manipulated doctors who got them hooked on drugs and created uh, this new population of middle-class white drug addicts who are now dying. In both cases, they didn't want to place the blame where it belonged, which is with drug prohibition, which has been responsible for this since the beginning. And, uh, I, I'm certainly I've been a doctor long enough to remember that when I was in medical school in the 70s, that was right in the, at, at the, the height of President Nixon's war on drugs. We doctors were indoctrinated into 
under prescribing opioids. We were told these are highly addictive, uh, high rate of overdose deaths, dangerous. Don't use them unless you absolutely have to. And the general public was told that as well. So that I can recall in the early years of my surgical practice in the 1980s, I'd be making post-op rounds on my patients. And they would, you know, obviously a day after a major surgery, their their pulse is rapid, they're hyperventilating, they're clearly uh, grimacing, they're in pain. And I'd say, uh, you look like you're in pain. Oh, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. Well, you know, just ring the bell. The nurse will come and bring you morphine. I have morphine order for you for pain. And they said, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to get addicted. And then I have to say to them, well, you're not going to get addicted if you're using it this way. This is what it's for. But you had this opiophobia, a term that you've heard, uh, on both sides of the bed here. You had the doctors uh, who were taught to fear opioids, and you had the, the patients as well. Then throughout the late 70s, through the 80s and through the early 90s, numerous articles in the medical literature, uh, numerous, uh, you know, the the uh, the proponents of the of the uh, prevailing narrative right now like to make people think that a single short letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, which was used by sales reps, that that's what convinced all of us to start over prescribing opioids. Well, that's not true, and that letter to the editor did cite. In their footnotes, two huge studies that were being done in Boston, involving Boston University Medical Center, uh, on in-hospital patients prescribed Demerol, uh, finding a very low addiction rate. But numerous studies beyond them were showing that actually, in, in the medical setting, opioids um, are, are rather safe. They have a low overdose rate, and they also have a low addictive potential, and that we are under-medicating our patients by the late 1980s, I think it was 1989, then a director of the National Institute on, uh, on Drug Abuse uh, issued a statement saying, you know, we're, we're irrationally fearing opioids and we should be much more willing to prescribe them. And so throughout the, the, uh, the late 80s, into the early 90s, I remember we were constantly getting urged in, in the medical literature to to take pain, patients' pain seriously and not be afraid to prescribe opioids. By the, by the uh, already opioid prescribing started increasing in the 80s, and by the uh, late 90s, it, it started really picking up. Oxycontin wasn't even FDA-approved until nine, 1996, but the overdose rate was already on its exponential growth trend way, way before then. So I remember in the uh, early 90s, it was popular for people to uh, non-medically use hydrocodone or Vicodin or Percocet. That was a popular one. Then when OxyContin came on the scene, uh, people who liked non-medically used diverted prescription pain pills quickly figured out that that's a concentrated dose of oxycodone, so you can get more bang for your buck. So that became more popular for people to, to either crush and snort or to inject or just to take orally. Um, so as the pres prescription volume started to increase, and uh, of course, the more prescriptions written, the more of them are available for diversion into the black market. And since people now had a more benign view of opioids, you know, uh, 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 this would be a typical setting at the co you know, on a college dorm. Uh, students are getting high and somebody said, hey, want to try this oxycodone? It's great. Give it a try. And by that time, a lot of people were familiar with these drugs. Oh, oxycodone. That's what my mom got after her knee surgery. Yeah, that can't be too dangerous. It's a prescription drug. So that that contributed to their popularity. By the way, as a physician, I must say, if somebody is going to non-medically, let's say recreationally use 
an opioid, they're much better off using a prescription opioid that was that's the real deal that was diverted for, into the black market than something they bought from somebody on the street because that could be counterfeit and fentanyl or whatever. You don't know what it is, but on the other hand, we do know uh, if it's five milligrams of oxycodone, we know exactly what that is. And we, yeah. So so if you're going to use something, use the thing that you know what it is. That when we know the dose, we know its purity. Anyway, so looking at more at the data, the data. You, you cannot look at the data and come to any other conclusion that this is caused, this is not caused by doctors overprescribing. Because, uh, for example, I published in the Journal of Pain Research, uh, which is a peer reviewed medical journal, with two other colleagues. We looked at data from, from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health and the CDC. And we found that from, uh, from 2002, when they first began taking the survey, to 2014, after that, they changed the, uh, the the questioning of the survey. But from 2002 to 2014, uh, past months, non-medical use of prescription pain relievers by persons aged 12 and up was essentially unchanged every single year, a flat, a straight line, horizontal line, flat line. And also from 2002 to 2014, past year diagnosed with prescription pain reliever use disorder, that was their terminology, unchanged and a flat line. Um, meanwhile, from 2002 to 2012, the prescription volume, the number of prescriptions per 100 persons doubled. And then from 2012, that, that was the peak year. Then it started coming down. Now it's down 60 percent since 2012. So there's no correlation whatsoever between the number of prescription pills written and the past month's non-medical use of prescription pain relievers or prescription pain reliever use disorder. And then you look also at the data that shows that the overwhelming majority of overdose deaths are polysubstance. It's upwards of 90% now of drug overdose deaths involve, uh, well, of course, now upwards of 90% involve illicit, illicit fentanyl, not prescription fentanyl, but illicit fentanyl. But in addition to that, uh, upwards of more, 90% or more have multiple substances on board, the most popular one being cocaine. So you're seeing an opioid overdose with opioid plus cocaine, uh, plus meth. Benzodiazepines are very commonly involved. Alcohol is commonly involved. Now, if in order for the, the thesis that doctors overprescribed opioids and created this population of opioid addicts that are now driven to the black market as opioid prescribers come down, well, like I said, the data shows there's been no no increase in the number of people addicted to opioids. But on top of that, what what about an addiction to opioids would make you feel compelled to to do the opioids with cocaine and meth and Xanax and alcohol? And I could tell you that no doctor ever prescribed oxycodone with co cocaine to patients. They never prescribed cocktails involving meth and oxycodone or anything like that. I'm being a little facetious here, but um, but so so just looking at the logic and then uh, because everybody decided that the uh, overdose rate is due to overprescribing, efforts were undertaken largely around the year 2010 to really reduce that. We had, uh, the Oxycontin was made in an abuse deterrent formulation so that it, it was uncrushable. And if you tried to liquefy it, it became gelatinous and unsuitable for injection. Numerous other opioids became made in an abuse deterrent formulation. The FDA is, has been encouraging that. And we have seen, uh, actually, a study out of uh, Notre Dame found that a one-to-one -one substitution of heroin for Oxycontin 
beginning the month after, the only way you could get Oxycontin was in abuse deterrent formulation. So people, and, and, and then uh, as, as the su- supply of diverted prescription pain pills began to dry up because prescriptions are coming down, those who were using non-medically in black market just moved on to the next thing. It's, it was at first heroin, according to Thomas Frieden, who was the uh, director of the CDC back in the Obama administration. At that time, he said heroin sold for one-fifth the street price of oxycodone on, on the street. And, and now, of course, heroin has been replaced by fentanyl. And uh, we can get into that if you want, but people who study prohibition, there's a term that was coined in the 1980s called the iron law of prohibition. It's uh, but economists call it the Alchie and Allen effect. Basically, prohibition incentivizes the production of more potent compact forms of whatever's being prohibited because that makes more sense from a business standpoint. If you're going to take that kind of risk, you want to risk, you want to be to get smaller and easier to smuggle and easier to subdivide into saleable units. So, a, a perfect example was during alcohol prohibition, they weren't smuggling in beer and wine, they were smuggling in whiskey. We actually have a real-life example of the iron law prohibition today. When, when people are tailgating before a football game, you know, in the parking lot there, they're drinking either beer or wine, but you're not allowed to bring any alcohol into the stadium. So when they sneak in alcohol into the stadium, they don't usually sneak in beer or wine. They usually sneak in the hard stuff, tequila, whiskey, that kind of thing. Same, that's the iron law. So that's why fentanyl has been replacing heroin. It's easier to make. It's cheaper to make. And it's much more potent. You could get more bang for the buck. And I think that was exacerbated by uh, the uh, pandemic. There was a, I've been reading a lot of papers recently suggesting that uh, there's been a shortage of, for example, acetate and hydride, which is used to process opium into heroin. So uh, that's kind of created and that's a supply chain issue due to the pandemic. And there's also problems, you know, with borders have been shut, harder to get things through borders. Uh, apparently, the supplies for the substrates of fentanyl that can be made in clandestine labs has not been very negatively impacted. So uh, part of the reason we're seeing such an increase in fentanyl, which has fueled the overdose rate, is because the COVID supply chain issues have also made fentanyl a more practical substitute for the drug cartels to go to. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think I... Yeah, a lot. I want to reiterate for some of the listeners is some of this data. So as you mentioned, potentially since the 50s, but at least since the 70s, you know, overdoses have been climbing. And so there's not a direct correlation between the increase in prescription opioids and overdoses. Right. And then top of that, the government has obviously severely restricted prescriptions and scared a lot of physicians into prescribing. And so we've seen a massive reduction in opioid prescriptions, but we've still seen a significant climb in overdoses. So that correlation is suspect. And then there's a second data set that you're talking around and SAMHSA's released this data. They've done it with the NASARC, right? The National Epidemiological Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions um, for decades that has shown the addiction rates in the U.S. have been flat or actually slightly on the downtrend, right? Yeah, actually, there's been some new data uh, since 2014, just, you know, with different different terminology. But if you... Uh, my colleague, Jeff Meyer at the Cato Institute, was, uh, he, he basically harmonized the data. And it looks like it's actually the dictionary has been trending slightly downwards since 2014. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big blow to kind of the thesis that while well, putting all these prescription pills onto the market, 
suddenly got people addicted that weren't before. And the reality right, is it's the right. same percentage of the population or, or slightly less. And all we're seeing is a shift in use. So maybe before people were using marijuana or crack or cocaine, and now they've shifted to opioids. And that usually comes to, as you're talking about, availability, right? What's the easiest to right, get access right. to and what's the cheapest? And free pills from your doctor <laughs> are the easiest to get access to and the cheapest. And probably the safest, by the way. <laughs> I yeah, would argue, right. Because you know what they are, you know, and they're not, they're not made in some lab somewhere. Right. So then you've got this concern that I think is worth digging into is, you know, this fear that opioids are severely addictive as are other drugs. And so it's because of the addictive nature of these chemicals that they're, you know, causing these overdoses and people to get hooked. And I mean, I even remember when I was living in China, uh, you know, obviously they have the, the opium wars there and the fears around that. And I had a small surgery in my knee. And these Chinese individuals would come into the hospital and they would have these surgeries with no anesthesia whatsoever because they were so terrified of um, becoming addicted to opioids. And so their family members would come in. This is just crazy to me. Their family members would come in and hold them down <laughs> during it's the terrible. surgery yeah. yeah, as they were screaming in pain um, because they were afraid of being addicted. So, well, you know, we're kind of getting back to that now. I mean, I'm seeing patients sent home for emergency rooms with kidney stones, told to take Tylenol, which Tylenol is relatively placebo, basically, for pain, but it's great for fever, but not for pain. I mean, kidney stones among the most excruciating pain you could imagine, and being told to take Tylenol, they used to be given a strong painkiller for that. Yeah. So there's this kind of competing narrative. One is these drugs are severely addictive, and so if you take them, you're by default somehow going to become addicted if you take them you know, for, for one time or a couple of times. And then on the flip side, you have this idea that it's potentially genetic, right? And it's the fact that you've got this genetic risk and predisposition, and that drives the addiction. But these are kind of in opposition to each other, right? One says you get addicted from the drug. The other says, no, it's biologically based. But the data, and you know, the, the one I usually quote is Dr. Volkov, right? She says that you know, about 8% of individuals that use prescription opioids long-term, three months or more, get addicted. So 92% of people have apparently no risk whatsoever. I um, mean, you've also had, had some research that you look at on that, but do you want to take a look at that research and how it applies to these questions? Well, yeah, well, I, I've, I've seen uh, at least two Cochrane's systematic reviews of chronic long-term non-cancer pain patients on opioids, and the addiction rate was 1% to 2%. And uh, now when you're dealing with acute uh, uh, use of opioids, there's a really large study done uh, by researchers at Johns Hopkins and Harvard came out in the BMJ, I think it was in 2018, where they followed uh, 568,000 opioid naive patients given, post, uh, given opioids for post-surgical pain uh, between the years 2008 and 2016. And they found a um, total misuse rate. Now, that's not addiction. That's misuse in general of 0.6%. And they've been, I, I don't want to get, you know, Boring with a whole bunch of other studies, but uh, another study came out two years ago in the annals of emergency medicine showing pretty much the same thing, that less than 1% of people who were prescribed opioids for acute pain were using or were, were still on an opioid prescription six months later. And out of that, well, less than 1%, 80% were actually still had a reason to, because they were, they were still, their pain problem hadn't been resolved. So that's part of the thing. The other thing is the definition of addiction and the theories of addiction. I think a lot of people, myself included, and doctors are guilty of this as well, we tend to 
mistakenly uh, use addiction when we should be saying dependency. And sometimes it's hard to sort one out from the other. But dependency, of, of course, as you know, is when drug you, you, you physiologically adapt to the drug. Sometimes you, you develop some tolerance, which is a corollary of that, where you need a greater dose to, to create the uh, desired result. And then if you abruptly withdraw the drug, you go into a withdrawal reaction. There's, there are numerous drugs, including opioids, to which people can get dependent anti-epileptics that people take for epilepsy. If you withdraw them when you've been on the long term, you can go into status epilepticus. Beta blockers, which are very commonly and effectively used to treat hypertension, if, if you uh, you develop dependence on that, if you withdraw, withdraw that abruptly, you can get a, a hypertensive crisis and a stroke or a heart attack. Fortunately, it's rare to see a fatal withdrawal reaction from opioids, but of course you, you could be miserable for you know three to five days. And so when we have a person who's dependent on a beta blocker for their hypertension, uh, nobody nobody would say they're addicted to the beta blocker. Likewise, however, when we have a patient who's been dependent on, a, let's say you know a daily steady dose of oxycontin and oxycodone for chronic pain. And it's been doing its job so that for the last five years, that person's at least been able to go to work and enjoy life meaningfully, even if they're not 100% pain-free. Well, why do we say, unfortunately, we're seeing that now, this person has been on this too long, we better get them off it. We, it's doing its job. Uh, whether they're dependent on it or not really is beside the point. It's doing its job. Now, addiction is defined as compulsive use despite negative consequences. And it doesn't. And I'm of the belief that it's primarily a behavioral or learning disorder. You know, there are different schools of thought on that. And the the MDs like me tend to be much more influential, uh, and uh, people tend to listen to them more. So, and we tend to be biased towards looking at everything as a disease, almost on an organic level. Uh, so, MDs tend to look at it as the drug sort of hijacks your brain and you become a zombie under its control. But other addiction researchers, particularly who are not MDs, but but some MDs also, they look at it as more as a sort of a learned automatized behavior that it, that is triggered. It's a kind of a safe space that, that almost you're subconsciously driven to. And uh, we all know that almost everyone who has addiction, if you dig into their history, you'll find they've had uh, serious psychological trauma in the early developmental years. It doesn't have developmental years. It doesn't have to be like a single episode, it could be cumulative. About two thirds to, to, to three quarters have psychoneurologic comorbidities such as ADHD, or they're on the autism spectrum or OCD or bipolar disorder. And then there is a, a genetic and epigenetic component, but it's, it's, it's not as strong. And then when the right set of circumstances come around, like if uh, in a typical situation, you already started off with these traumas, you have Let's say, uh, you know, uh, you're on the autism spectrum. And so you're already kind of not mixing in with the normal kids at school. You're one of the outcasts. You start hanging around with some of the outcasts. Uh, you engage in, in drug experimentation with them. Uh, and unlike most of the people you engage in it with, you develop this unhealthy relationship with the drug. So instead of it just being a phase in your life, an experimental phase that so many of us could talk about, uh, this takes on a different different role in your life and you find yourself needing it. But this doesn't have to be with substances. We know of gambling addiction, shopping addiction, sex addiction. I mean, it, 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 so it's it, it's not necessarily 
a substance. And you're also not necessarily completely controlled like a zombie. In Maya Salavis's fantastic book called Unbroken Brain, where she describes her own experiences and, and the science in this, she, she pointed out that, uh, you know, whenever she saw police around, she didn't use because she didn't want to get in trouble. So if she was a zombie controlled by the drug, she wouldn't be able to control her behavior. She was able to control her behavior when she had to. And also, we know that a significant percentage of the population who are is addicted to illicit drugs on their own by the time they hit their 30s, just kind of without any rehab, just kind of auto detox. They, they just stop, just like with ADHD. Another behavioral disorder, they, that gets outgrown as well. So a significant number of people who are addicted outgrow it. So I think there's a lot more to addiction that we're just beginning to understand. But it's, it's much easier when you're trying to, to feed a narrative to look at, at, at addiction as the, sub, the substance addicted you, you're controlled by it. And those mean old pharmaceutical companies and those stupid doctors got you addicted. And now, so it's not your fault. Now, if, like I say, in the 80s, when it was a minority person, it was your fault. But we can't blame that on our kids who live in the suburbs. So it was the doctors and pharmaceutical companies' fault. But it's, so there's a lot of a lack of understanding of what addiction even is by the people who are feeding uh, this narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It, from my perspective, you know, I've done a lot of presentations on the data around addiction, and th there is a big disconnect between what the data shows and what some of the perspectives are. And, you know, if we take that example that you just gave, there's this assumption that's okay, you know, a drug may be hijacking the brain, but we see within Nita's own data, you know, from Dr. Volkov herself, that 92% of people that take a prescription opioid for more than three months do not become addicted. So the vast majority of people don't. There's a small percentage that does, and people may argue and say, well, okay, that's that small percentage that had a genetic predisposition. But then again, when we look into that data, that doesn't exactly pan out either. Yeah, I like, I like to say that drug didn't addict you. You became addicted to the drug. I think that's just a better way to look at it, by the way. Yeah, so like one of the data points there is 77% like of people that became addicted to prescription opioids, had used cocaine prior. Right, right, right yeah. So to your point, yeah. you know, these are individuals that were already using some kind of substance, and that's pretty common, right? If you talk to most people that are addicted to pain pills, they were already struggling with alcohol or something else. It, it's pretty rare that their uh, addiction started with the prescriptions pill. It was... Yeah, I think you're. I think you're referring to that study. It was American Journal of Psychiatry in 2007 by Carice et al. Yeah, 77 or 78 percent of people who were admitted to rehab for OxyContin addiction had previously had rehab for substance use disorder before, yep. and also were using cocaine. Yeah, and and the reason they gave for the use of OxyContin is they liked the feeling, they liked the buzz. It wasn't because a doctor prescribed it for them. That's right. You know, and there's another misleading statistic that you'll often hear is saying, okay, well, 75% of heroin users started on prescription opioids. But the reality is that only 4% of prescription opioid users ever use heroin. So the vast majority never even touch it. 
Whereas, of course, if you use heroin, you probably start on something else. It's just like if you, uh, you know, swim, you're more likely to be a diver. So 90% of divers start off as swimmers. You know, it's just. Yeah, that's playing games with that. Yeah. Right. In fact, in fact, uh, Ted Cicero, who's, you know, a highly respected researcher in this area at Washington University in, in St. Louis, he published a, a study in 2017. It was a, a follow up. He looked at heroin addicts addicted to rehab in 2015. And found 33, a little over 33 percent said that they initiated their non-medical drug use with heroin, that that was, quote unquote, the gateway drug for them. They, that's what they started with, which was, uh, to me, alarming. Uh, and 10 years earlier, in the same survey he did, only 8.9 percent said they initiated with heroin. The majority said they initiated with diverted prescription pain pills. So this kind of points to what I think is what the University of Pittsburgh research has suggested as well. It is, there's a lot of kind of sociocultural uh, dynamics going on underneath the surface. We're seeing a, a larger popula- proportion of the population either self-medicating or recreationally using drugs outside you know, the, the medical uh, sphere. Uh, we're seeing people willing to take risks with drugs that in a greater to a greater amount than in earlier times. I mean, back in I'm a boomer. Back in my day, we consider ourselves daredevils using cannabis, you know. And if anybody suggested heroin, that was considered like uh, too far. <laughs> that was that was over the line for most of us. Now, apparently, uh, you know, a significant number of young people are willing to start off trying heroin. So this is I, I think it's it's. As is usually the case, there are multiple factors involved, and it's much more complicated, but it's easy. Everybody always wants to place the blame somewhere. I can understand that. I mean, that's that, that probably a natural human tendency, and especially easy for policymakers, because policymakers are looking for a simple fix to everything. So first you come up with a simple a simple, you know, boogeyman, and then you then you go after it. And then you notice that while you've done that, so okay, so you got your prescription rate down 60%. So how's that working out? Well, there are a whole lot of patients in pain now who are getting desperate. They've been cut off from their pain medicine by doctors who are afraid to prescribe to them anymore. Some of them are, we hear reports of people turning to suicide. Many are turning to the black market where they're getting what they think is a prescription pain pill, but oftentimes it's counterfeit and made with fentanyl and they're overdosing. So, so patients who need pain medicine are getting deprived of pain medicine and all we've done to the non to, to the population of non-medical users is deprive them of a safer a safer source for non-medical drug use by by drying up the diverted prescription pain pill market, driving them to first heroin and now fentanyl. So it's like the worst of possible outcomes. Again, the patients are suffering and overdoses are going up. You, you couldn't ask for a worse outcome. Yeah, it really has not been going in, in a positive direction at all. And you, I think it was on the Soho Forum, you just had a debate in New York, and you quoted, uh, I think it was you that was quoting the statistic, but you know, I think it's 75% of those struggling with an opioid a pill addiction to opioid prescriptions started with pills that were not gotten from a physician. So they got them from an illicit source or, you know, stolen yeah. from friends and yeah. family. So the vast majority of people that actually have this OUD on a prescription pills never had a prescription in the first place. Right. The National Survey and Drug Use and Health, that's my source. They, uh, year after year, they, they basically, when they ask people who are non-medically using prescription pain pills, they ask, where'd you get it? And 
roughly three quarters each year say they either got it from a friend, a relative, or a dealer. Less than a quarter say they went and got it from a doctor. You know, there's this there's this narrative that this young, you know, high school football athlete broke a leg, was given opioids, became a drug addict, and now he's using heroin in the streets. Now, I don't deny they may be that may happen here and there, but those are really exceptions to the rule, uh, and they're, and they're more you know very startling anecdotes. The fact is that a lot of teenagers and college students who like to recreationally use drugs had been using diverted prescription pain pills. And, that, and anybody who went to college in the early 2000s could attest to that. Yeah, I just really think covering this data is extremely important because we have to understand causation aspects of addiction and we have to understand all the, all the cultural dynamics that play into it if we really wanna help people either from a preventative standpoint or from a treatment standpoint. So when we make assumptions that don't line up with the data, then we, tend to apply the wrong treatments or the wrong solutions. Yes, I agree. So, you know, we're talking a lot about saying that, okay, this narrative around opioids and maybe other drugs hijacking the brain and being addictive is not necessarily accurate. And then what about the pharmaceutical companies in general? I mean, do you have an opinion on, on where they come into this whole picture? Well, you know, pharmaceutical companies uh, exist to profit, you know, that's what, so uh, I, I can only go by you know, what I read in the papers, I'm, it's, I don't, I'm not interested in defending them or being an apologist for them, but they apparently have been documented times when the sales reps for some of these pharmaceutical companies, are, and the ones we know most about are Purdue Pharma, but there are others, when they were, let's say, being overzealous and pointing out the, the, uh, the benefits of prescribing their particular product like Oxycontin. It's, in order for, I do know this, that a sales rep is not allowed to tell uh, a, a healthcare practitioner to their visit anything that's not pre-approved by the FDA. So basically their script, so to speak, has to be approved by the FDA. And uh, historically, for example, um, while there was initially some evidence in the 90s, mainly proprietary evidence, suggesting that Oxycontin may have less of an addictive potential, which is not the case. The, some of the sales reps were going to mention that to, to doctors that they would call on, and the FDA specifically told them, we don't know that's the case. You cannot mention that. Take that out of the script. And apparently, according to a, a lawsuit that was settled, so uh, I don't think Purdue Pharma, maybe they did uh, admit to guilt on that one. A suit was brought against uh, them because if some of your sales reps are are uh, rogue, then of course the CEO is responsible. So there were some rogue sales reps who were deviating from the script and inserting that prohibited comment to doctors. So I'm not saying that these guys were angels and they've been and and uh, you know they're 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 victims, but to me that's beside the point because so if you after you you know you get your scalp from Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, at the end of the day, the overdose rate is still going up and patients are being deprived of needed pain medication because notwithstanding some unethical behavior on the part of some sales reps and maybe even some sales, some pharmaceutical CEOs, that's not the direct cause of the overdose crisis. The overdose crisis, if you want to get to the bottom, the very bottom of it, it's prohibition, which is what makes all, I mean, it, I believe in, in harm reduction, and more and more now, harm reduction is starting to gain a foothold in this country. It's been 
it's been uh, accepted in most of the developed world except the U.S. You know, things like uh, needle exchange programs and medication-assisted treatment and all those kind of methods of reducing harm. Well, if you think about it, most of the harm that comes from non-medical drug use is, is a re direct result of prohibition. Because if you can access a prescription-grade opioid uh, legally, then you wouldn't be taking a chance uh, uh, and uh, with what might be a counterfeit opioid pill made with fentanyl on the black market. So prohibition is getting rid of prohibition would be the ultimate harm reduction tool. But but anyway, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't think the pharmaceutical companies were angels, but I think it's beside the point. Well, I think uh, following up on your comments there, you know, so there's a lot of data challenging the narrative of, you know, opioids hijacking the brain and forcing addiction, right? Like some average person is just going to get addicted because they took some. That doesn't, that's not borne out in the data. We don't see the overprescription necessarily correlating. So as prescriptions have dropped, uh, overdoses have continued to climb. But also, I guess, related to the prohibition comment, you know, when we had a lot of overdoses as opioid availability was high, right, through diversion, we did see an increase in overdoses significantly that we haven't seen before. So, I guess your comments on that, because it doesn't seem necessarily that prohibition per se was the issue because there was opioids everywhere, right? And they were highly available, but we still saw a pretty significant increase in overdoses during that time period. We, yeah, because there was more more drugs getting their way into the into the black market. So people who are obviously, if you're, it's, as, as you know, uh, taken medically, the overdose potential of an opioid is extremely small. Dr. Dasgupta did a prospective study of North Carolinians, I think it was in the year 2016, I think it was. They followed two and a half million people in North Carolina prescribed opioids for one year, and the overdose rate was 0.022%. And two-thirds of them had polysubstances when they were found to have overdose. And even in a, in a famous study done by the uh, VA patients by uh, uh, Amy Bonner that that led to the uh, morphine milligram equivalent fiasco, which I don't subscribe to. But she found that uh, it followed 158,000 chronic pain patients in the VA system over, I think it was a period of four years. And the overdose rate was 0.04%. So if you use opioids uh, for, the, for their intended use as recommended, then it, they're very safe. But when they're being used recreationally, you know, in a, in a non-medical sphere, then even if they were legally produced, uh, but they, you know, you're taking them, the, the overdoses oftentimes were polydrug mixed with alcohol, mixed with benzodiazepines, and taken in very large quantities, much larger quantities than a doctor would recommend. Yeah, that's a great point. I think people are often surprised by that, but, you know, it's, it's very hard to overdose on pure heroin. People think that that's something that just you know kills people, but the reality is that they really have to use it with other substances, whether that's benzo. Yeah, heroin. Yeah, I mean it's diamorphine, diastomorphine. That's on the formula in a number of countries, including Canada, the UK, and most of Europe, and uh, it's roughly about one and a half times the potency of morphine, and it's actually about half the potency of legal dilaudid in this country. Dilaudid is legal. Heroin was. It's interesting history. It was uh, the head of the Bureau of Narcotics in the early 1920s became convinced that people they were arresting for non-medical use of heroin had, were more, quote unquote, morally depraved than those who were being arrested for morphine. Uh, translation, they were predominantly 
black and brown people. <laughs> and um, and so he asked Congress to ban heroin. And the AMA actually testified in opposition to that, saying, you know, we only have a few things to treat pain and there's no scientific basis for what you're saying and we need it. But Congress banned uh, heroin. And then, as any economist would have predicted, within 10 years, heroin became the predominant opioid to which people were addicted. Because if you're going to sell something on a black market, it's much better, it's much more profitable to sell something that is completely banned than it is to try to sell something that there are other ways to get it, you know? So, so that, that was the cause of the heroin problem. Yeah. You know, there is a very interesting history tying racism and the prohibition of certain drugs, right? We've seen it with Chinese immigrants as well as minority populations. And it's been an ongoing. Yeah. California banned, California banned opium before Mississippi did. And that's because they had a large Chinese population. Sure. And, uh, yeah, and Mississippi was the last state in the union to finally lift alcohol prohibition. So it's not like Mississippi was more libertine. It's just they didn't have it. They didn't have a lot of Chinese, so it wasn't an issue to them. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything uh, that we missed, or any final thoughts that you want to bring up that we didn't cover? No, I think the, the the main thing is I think all of us, myself included, I'm still learning, and I think. Nobody knows all of it yet. We all have a misunderstanding uh, and a misperception of just what addiction really is. It's much more, uh, much more complicated than the medical model where this drug has kind of taken over your brain and now you're a slave to it. But instead, it, I, I think it's important to look at it as, as a, a behavioral disorder, not unrelated to things like OCD or even eating disorders, Things like that, where this either substance or, like I say, behavior, for example, gambling, uh, is is somehow almost on a subconscious level after a while. That becomes something you feel you are compelled to do because that becomes your safe space. That's where where things where you don't feel as threatened. And, and so the, the key at the end of the day to, to overcoming it. Now I'm sounding like a clinical psychologist instead of like a surgeon, but it's it's to, to figure out what it is that triggers that learn to recognize it and then develop a different set of coping skills for whatever it is that triggered it yeah well i appreciate your comments there and the the challenges of understanding causality because it is different for different people and it's very complex i think we we yeah. like a simple answer but you know one of the probably the the best data points i think i've seen is is not necessarily with addiction but schizophrenia you know they do these amazing studies out of scandinavia because they got all this data that they track for generations, but, you know, they looked at the Scandinavian schizophrenia rates and, you know, it's 1% for the general population, which is pretty standard. And then they did a bunch of adoption studies and they said, okay, well, you know, if someone gets adopted into a family with schizophrenic tendencies, then there's a 3% chance they'll have schizophrenia. So it triples. But then they looked at the genetics and said, okay, well, if birth parents had schizophrenia, then there was a 9% chance that they would you know, develop schizophrenia. But then they combined it and they said, okay, well, what if you have this um, parents who had it plus your adopted family has it? Well, then there was a 17% chance. So it's not linear. And then even when you look at all that data, still at the end of the day, even if you had a genetic predisposition on top of a family with the exact issues, you still had 83% of people that did not develop schizophrenia, right? Right. There were these resistance or mechanisms in place that allow for people to either not get it or, or get past it. So I think it's important for us to remember all these different factors that come into play and there's no easy answer. 
yeah, because the genetics may predispose you, maybe give you vulnerabilities, but there's still a whole lot of other moving parts that have to come and kind of come into play to create this sort of a perfect storm where that's what happens. Right, right. And it's ultimately not determinative, right? It's uh, right. There's a, a minor or small probability, even with the deck stacked against you. <laughs> um, right, right. You know, things can still go pretty strongly in your favor. So really appreciate the time, Jeffrey. If someone wanted to get in contact with you or find out more, what would be the best way to do that? Best, best way is to visit the Cato Institute website. That's C-A-T-O dot O-R-G. Uh, on the top of the homepage, you'll see a thing that says experts. If you click on that, there'll be a drop down menu and all of the experts are listed in alphabetical order. And if you click on that, you'll get to their bio page, which has everything we've ever done available to read. And I could be reached uh, by my Twitter handle is at dr. Doctor number four liberty at doctor for liberty. And my email address at Cato is jsinger at cato.org. Well, I really appreciate the time. And to all our listeners out there, this is a Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you guys next time.